Dr. Carol Francis Talk Radio Show. Let's make life happen together with authors, scientists, researchers, both inside the box and outside the box of understanding so that you can live a life full of your success, curiosity, enjoyment, happiness, and richness of life in every respect. Let's go beyond our limits and let's help others go beyond their limits as well. Welcome. Having endured abuse and trauma, a sense of certain amounts of limits that you feel in your life, like kind of restrictions and constrictions, and we want to break through those so that you can recover and thrive. And to help us today is Nancy Levine. Levine. Oh, my goodness, Nancy, how do you say Le- your last it's name? Actually, it's actually Levin. <laughs> oh, my goodness, I've blown it. But everybody, now you'll remember Nancy okay. Levin. Nancy, mm-hmm. you are a, an author of many books. You are a businesswoman in your background. You are a life coach in your present life as well. And you're here today to share with us different tools for recovering from abuse and trauma. And I'm going to pop all sorts of questions at you. Are you ready to go? I'm ready to go. Go for it. Individuals that are like escaping from abuse and trauma often feel this sense of shock that this new culture that doesn't have abuse and trauma in it, this brand new world that doesn't have abuse and trauma is unfamiliar to them. And in that unfamiliarity, Mm -hmm. they kind of look for familiarity. You know, we will look for the comfort of familiarity. So Mm -hmm. how do you help people to go from what they know, which is the abuse and trauma that's been so ingrained into their brain, their heart, their emotions, their their personal self-expression into where they don't have to be responding to abuse, but they don't exactly know how to respond. So what are your ideas along those lines? Yeah. So part of this is first understanding the imprints and the patterning that we are living with. And like you said, because we're used to what's familiar to us, are we're we're almost on high alert like our radar is seeking for what it knows so the first thing is to actually begin with a process of learning how to feel safe in the unknown learning that the unknown is what's going to actually provide us with opportunities and options that haven't been available to us in the past because what we are often doing is it's it's almost like we begin overlaying the past onto the present, and we don't give the present a chance to stand on its own. So we're in that space of that overlay, which is what breeds the fear, what breeds the shame, what keeps the pain of the past locked in, locked in place. So... It begins with a a practice, really, of being able to come into the present moment and, and even to the point where we're talking to ourselves of this is now, this is not then. This, this person in front of me is not the person from the past. I have an opportunity to make choices in the present moment that are going to bring forth the future that I desire. So it's about choice also. Okay, beautifully said. And now, I would wonder to what degree the word awkward is part of the tolerance. And so you could imagine that one would feel really awkward in a new situation that they haven't encountered before that doesn't have abuse and trauma 
part of it when the abuse and trauma has been really a long-term sort of situation. So in that space of not feeling comfortable, what is it like to endure your own awkwardness? Gee, I don't know how to act. I don't know how to Mm -hmm. respond. Mm -hmm. I don't know what words to use. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that there is a fair amount of of being, uh, I would say, being patient with that awkwardness and coming into uh, almost like a comfort with the discomfort so that we're not, we're not looking for something that resembles the past equaling comfort so that we can begin to grow the muscle, strengthen the muscle of finding comfort in the unknown, as I was saying. That's what's going to begin to, to allow us to move forward. And it is, it's a process. That's what I want to say. I'll say it over and over again. So it's, it's not something that's going to be instantaneous, and it's not, maybe not even something where there is uh, an exact destination. But it's a constant, it's a, it's a constant strengthening of a, and practicing over time. Beautifully said. Now, I heard you speaking at the Hay House uh, Writers Workshop, and one of the reasons I very quickly contacted you and said, would you please speak on my my podcast, is because you really understand what it's like to fight the demon of perfectionism. And I'm wondering what to, yes, (laughs) and I love what you've done with that. And I think that part of people recovering is realizing that in moving out of a recovery excuse me, moving out of an abuse and trauma mindset, you're shifting into something that feels unfamiliar or awkward for a period of time. And you have to know there's no perfect response. You are required to give your new environment because this new Mm -hmm. environment is likely not going to judge you. It's likely not going to hurt you if you're not perfect. But what's it like to wake up to that reality of, oh, I don't have to find this careful, small bandwidth of responses that avoids the trauma or abuse. I can like, kind of be imperfect and awkward. So walk us through some of the process that you so deeply well understand and so clearly have worked through. Yeah, and, and what I want to say is it's, it, you know, it's, it's no small feat <laughs> what we're talking about. The, yes. It's, it's, it's so I, I want to actually give it, give it the weight that it deserves because when we're used to living on high alert in a space of what do I need to say or do to keep myself out of trouble? What do I need to say or do so that I won't be punished? What do I need to say or do to make everything be okay? What do I, you know, when we're in that constant state, it's really something to actually shift to the space of being able to first think about ourselves as having wants and needs that are a priority beyond the want or need of, of keeping someone else at bay and then shifting into the place of knowing, really deeply knowing that I'm okay and whatever happens is okay and I don't need to package myself to be digestible to someone else. Hmm. So for me, that was the real, the real turning point for me was understanding that the ways in which 
I was managing the perception of others and essentially giving people the lens that I wanted them to see me through. So I was, I was living in this, I was really giving people this image of perfection of me. And that's the way I wanted to be seen. And it really started from the place I know now of I didn't want anyone to know me because ultimately I didn't want to know me. So in all my coaching and everything I do with anyone I work with, we begin with the seed of truth telling because I always, I always come back to there's a truth nesting inside of each of us that began as a whisper that is screaming by now that we likely have spent a lot of time and energy suppressing. That is very powerfully said. Do you remember the experience or in working with individuals? And I'm not wanting you to reveal anybody's confidential stories, mm-hmm. um, but in just in the generic, what it's like for individuals that say, I don't even know who I am. I don't know mm-hmm. my own thoughts. I don't know my own feelings. I don't know mm-hmm. my own body. I don't know yeah. who I am. So that part of the awkwardness is uh, I have no understanding. I don't even really exist. And whether oh, that's yeah. profoundly into deep, being depersonalized, you know, dissociated, or if it's just even more subtle and, and therefore just the process of getting to know yourself is what? What is that like, Nancy? Yeah, so I mean, I'll, I'll actually, I'll, I'll just go right for it and, and I'll share about myself <laughs> because this is something that really resonates for me. So I was in an 18-year marriage and my now ex-husband was very controlling, very rageful. And when I was, and I'm talking controlling to the level of what I wore, what I ate, how I exercised, and he had me convinced that I did not know how to think for myself. Now, the irony is, here I was in my career as the event director at Hay House, full power, powerhouse of a woman in her career, and at home, I couldn't open my mouth. And this is not uncommon. Hmm. When I left my marriage, when when I finally was able to separate and I was in my own space, I am not exaggerating when I tell you that I sat on the couch for five days in the same clothes. I didn't know, I did not know what to do. I did not know who I was. I didn't know, I didn't, I, I, without being told what to wear, how to move my body, what to eat, it was, it was almost too much for me to take those decisions on. I know it sounds dramatic, Mm-mm. but it was almost too much for me to take those, to take those decisions on. And when I was able to mobilize and I was able to access a part of me that actually had desire 
everything began to change. Because here's the thing. In my marriage, the dynamic only worked if I was sublimating my own desire in service of implementing all of his. So I had to come into connection with the fact that I had wants, I had needs, I had desires. And I began keeping track of these. I began starting a list. Anytime there would be any part of me that wanted something for myself, I would write it down. This eventually turned into the cornerstone exercise in my book Worthy and my coaching program Worthy, and it's called 50 Desires. And it's a process of actually being able to name 50 50 desires that we have for ourselves. Because for so many women specifically that I work with, although there are plenty of men that I work with too where this is the case, we have abandoned ourselves for the sake of another for so long. And we have abandoned ourselves also, as I was mentioning earlier, in order to keep the peace, not rock the boat, not have confrontation, not have conflict to the degree that we've actually died inside. And so connecting with that sense of desire was what I would say reawoke, reawoke me. The desires that came to mind as I envisioned you on your five days on the couch, the first one came to my mind was, oh, I probably need to take a shower. <laughs> I, I probably yeah. need to brush my teeth. Mm-hmm. I probably, in other words, these very basic kind of Very basic. Very yeah. basic. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, you know when I and then you know, a, you know go ahead. I, well, I'm a child development specialist, and I know that in the mm-hmm. relationship between a mom and a father and a baby, the responsiveness, the high level of responsiveness parents can have to a child's desires when they cry, this, that, or the other, is actually really important to the child developing a sense of identity. Um, maybe the parents kind of lose their identity in the process of some of that that in, entanglement, but at the same time. It is about the baby being able to express and the parent being able to match the desire. So in a sense, I'm hearing you say that a person who's recovering has to become their own parent in that they have to listen mm-hmm. to their desire mm-hmm. and then they have to mm-hmm. respond respectfully. And that in responding to their desires, they may not always interpret their desires accurately, just like a parent can't understand what the cry is about. But there is this emotional commitment and effort, this love that says, I don't understand you, but I care to try. And what is that like to develop that mirroring twinship inside yourself where you're both the growing baby uh, that's growing and learning and evolving and also the person that needs to respond because that's part of the recovery process is recognizing it is. I've got to take care of myself. You know, yep. I have to hear myself and take care of myself. What comes to mind? You know, what comes to mind is this sort of uh, this bandwagon, this soapbox that I've been on lately, which is around <laughs> reclaiming selfish. And that I really believe that selfish, self-care, and self-love are three sisters whose job it is to support us in honoring ourselves. And 
part of this, you know, what you're naming, this sort of mirroring and this parenting, like being both the parent and the child and the reparenting ourselves in this, is about deeply listening and giving ourselves a seat at the table, so to speak. Because what's been happening up till now is we've been living in reaction to everyone around us. We've been living from a place of, you know, I'll keep saying it because this is something that comes up in trauma and abuse and recovery. We are living in, we're used to living in a state of high alert. Mm -hmm. We're used to, we're used to, in other words, taking someone else's temperature in order to know ours. We're Mm -hmm. used to checking someone else's weather in order to know ours. And so it's really important in this whole process. This is where the desire piece comes in. This is where everything we're talking about weaves together. It's really important to begin to get familiar with our own inner territory, our own inner landscape, and make knowing what's happening inside of us first and foremost a priority. That's how we then can learn what our desires are, but we also begin to learn what our non-negotiables are. We learn to know what our boundaries are because boundaries, it, boundaries are another um, very confusing aspect when we're in recovery. So okay. we're wanting to get clear because our boundaries have been violated and there are ways in which we aren't aware that we've enabled them to be violated in certain cases. And in some cases, we, we, weren't, we didn't have the wherewithal. We weren't in a position to, be, to, to know that we had any choices. You know, there may have been mind. things that were happening beyond our control. What comes to mind, I mean, so many things, your thoughts are just triggering so much, I'm sure, in our listeners as well. But one aspect that comes to mind is that many people walk into an abusive relationship, because I know we're also talking about trauma mm-hmm. where violence yeah. occurs to you without you being in control of it. But in an abusive relationship where they're kind of seduced into being their nurturing, caring, giving selves, and mm-hmm. that, that's good. Those those skills to be caring and nurturing and compassionate and giving are really wonderful skills. Our planet needs a lot of that. You know, what our world needs is love is kind of a, a, a definitely a meme. But at the same time, how do we recognize when we have stopped uh, self-respect? I know you're talking about love, but self-respect uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in and replacing it with somehow trying to make this other person happy, ever striving to make this other person happy as if Mm -hmm. that is our ultimate task. What comes to mind again? So it's, it's, it's the shift away from attention on other and bringing attention onto self. And for most people it will be bringing attention onto self for the first time because we we think that we have this idea that love is about harmony, is about keeping the peace, is about making sure that someone else is happy, is about making sure that there's no conflict. And that's not, that's not what it's about. It's about bringing the fullness of who I am into the container of relationship where there's also space for the fullness of you. Mm-hmm. 
Beautifully said. Yeah. Okay. And this so is, now, I mean, and, and I was, I just wanted to say that this is for me, you know, this is one of the biggest, um, I would say this is something that gets us into trouble a lot, thinking that the goal of relationship is harmony when in fact relationship mm-hmm. is constantly in flux. Mm-hmm. So it's not about trying to get it static or trying to get it to a place where it stays still, but it's, but it's a place where we're able to, we're able to assess our own reactions and responses and we're able to make different choices as we go. And the recovery time gets shorter each time that we strengthen that muscle. Hmm. What do you mean the recovery time gets shorter each time we strengthen that muscle? Can you illustrate that? That's really interesting. Yeah. So I would say, you know, whenever there's, uh, if there's a fight, let's say, or if there's conflict or, I mean, and, and, and uh, I'm speaking more about as we're moving into a healthier relationship. Okay. uh, That, that, the the depth and breadth of pain or discomfort actually actually gets gets lessened or gets shortened because we're getting we're getting more attuned to the way that there's a dynamic in place now that's very different from being in an abusive situation and getting desensitized that's mm-hmm. not what i'm talking about <laughs> mhm in, in, in the context of a healthy relationship, a lot of individuals mm-hmm. that have had abuse uh, or have been traumatized, they kind of expect that the other person is, is not going to be able to listen or care or respond mm-hmm. pragmatically and that the other person may not even want to. The communication style that's different between one person and another is also a factor. So I find with individuals that have suffered from abuse, they feel like they, I'm telling you what I need. I'm telling you who I am. And a well-meaning good person on the other end of that message may not hear the message clearly because it's somehow not delivered the way they can hear it. And that Mm -hmm. lack of delivery of the message results in person B, the partner that's not abusive, into being confused or non-responsive. So that the person who has been abused, in this case, person A, begins to feel like they need to escalate into something that probably resembles the conflict that was in the abusive situation. So that person A now will escalate the same type of message in the same type of way, but do it louder and shriller or in a Mm -hmm. more intense fashion, whether that's verbally or physically or or passive aggressive or whatever technique, still the person B cannot hear the message. It's not delivered the way the person B even can comprehend. The bottom line is that person A has to believe that person B, one, wants to hear the message. That's hard to believe. Two, would like to respond to the message in a reasonable fashion, a caring fashion. But C, is not understanding, but wants to. And it's that belief that that other person is not an abuser that's core to being able to allow this new relationship to not shift back into old patterns. So I said a lot in there, but what, how, do you, how do you look at that? What's your configuration of yeah, working I mean, on that so dynamic? The, yeah, so the, the first thing that comes to me is, is that I think most, most of us are not, are not uh, trained 
and therefore are not experienced or comfortable in naming direct requests around our needs. And yet what I find in my own relationships and in relationships of clients I coach, that the more direct we can be, the more likely we are to be met. Now, this first has to step, go a, ba- a half step back in, we first need to, we first need to ask, you know, let's say person B, what they're available for. Hmm. So we first have to say, here's what's going on for me. Here's what I notice I need. Here's something specific that you could do to support me. Are you available for that? Hmm. There, there's that old expression, don't go to the hardware store for milk. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and yet in our relationships, we often do. Mm-hmm. And part of it stems from not being direct enough. Hmm. And this is... This is especially a challenging hurdle to overcome when we've been in a situation where we've been abused, where we've been silenced, to be able to actually get clear within ourselves, huh, here's what's going on for me. Here's what I need. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a direct request of you, and I'm going to check with you to see if you're available to meet me in this, because if you're not, I, I'm not going to keep coming to you for this. Mm-hmm. That's where a lot of conflict is bred. Mm-hmm. Why won't they give me, why won't someone else give me what I need? Well, first of mm-hmm. all, we can't always be looking outside of ourselves for, to get our needs met. That's mm-hmm. not the purpose of relationship either. <laughs> so there's a fair amount of meeting our own needs that has to happen, mm-hmm. taking responsibility there first. And then, like I said, getting really clear on what I need, asking directly, and asking if the other person is available to give in that way. That's beautifully said. Two ways I want to go. One, your relationship with yourself. But let's stay on this connection to a relationship with another person. You are, in essence, implying that uh, person A, with their needs, has to, one, know that their needs are not defined by how people meet them. Because a lot of people will say, well, my needs must be wrong if they can't be met. Right. Or I must be bad if I need this and someone says I can't. Two, they also assumed way too rashly that if this other person can't meet the need, therefore they're not, that other person doesn't love them, which is not what you're saying is not true. Right. Or three, that if I have this need, this other person isn't going to meet him, I must end that relationship and find someone else to satisfy everything. Right. Or right. Know, like all one relationship should satisfy everything. That's right. So right. You're having lots of thoughts about this. Go for it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, and I, I, I feel, I do feel strongly about this. I think in this day and age, uh, I'll say, you know, marriage or partnership um, is defined very, is, 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 gotten to, let's say, very differently than it used to be. So it used to be about, you know, property. It used to be about, um, you know, oh, we can have sex now because we're married. <laughs> you know, it used, there were, mm-hmm. used to be all these things that are no longer really the governors 
of marriage or partnership now. Mm-hmm. And so we also are living much longer lives. So I personally, this is controversial, but I personally don't know that marriage was ever supposed to last as long mm-hmm. as we think mm-hmm. it's supposed to last now. You know, mm-hmm. marriage was invented at a time that no one lived anywhere near the, the ages that we live now. Mm-hmm. And, and this whole idea you know, that I would say is brought in by the, you know, brought in by the whole Jerry Maguire, you complete me, you know, epidemic, if you will, the whole Disney yeah. princess, the whole, you know, mm-hmm. the, all of that, bringing in this idea that, you know, the other, that, that our partner uh, should, should be all these things. Otherwise, they're not the right partner for me. Mm-hmm. And I'll very clearly tell you, I have my, my closest girlfriend. We refer to each other as our NSLP, our non-sexual life partner. Hmm. And she is really, in many ways, my go-to person for many hmm. things. Hmm. She meets a need of mine that my boyfriend does not meet. Hmm. And so instead of going to the hardware store for milk with him, I'm going to go right to the dairy and get the milk from her. (laughs) Oh, that's nice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So part of that is also knowing who are, you know, who's, who is my community Mm -hmm. that is in place to support me and Mm -hmm. which need of mine can be met most seamlessly and by whom Mm -hmm. and can I make the arrangements to go to that person as opposed to trying to get everything out of my intimate partner, my husband, wife, spouse, whatever we want to say, mm-hmm. because I, you know, controversial or not, I think it's unrealistic to think that any one person is going to be able to meet us fully in any way. And I think we set ourselves up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we set ourselves up by thinking that it should be that way. And if it's not that way, something's wrong because of the message that we receive in the media, in the movies. I think that as we become broader and more complex and more expansive individuals, we have to recognize this especially so that we don't feel like we have to shrink ourselves in order to uh, let this one person satisfy everything. But this is complicated because let's do the reverse mm-hmm. for a moment. And that is an individual can often become controlling or demanding mm-hmm. because they feel like this person should meet everything. And that's when you can kind of slip into abusive kind of uh, mm-hmm. uh, attitude, you know, but wait a minute, you're supposed to, or, you know, or, or when, when does that become uh, that, you know, it flips into that abusiveness when you're demanding your needs to be met, recognizing that other person isn't there for everything in me. And it is controversial because now we're talking about sexual relationships and intimacy mm-hmm. and monogamy or not. And, but let's not get too far afield, but that definitely is another program in and of itself. And now I, I want to talk about the relationship with ourselves, which you really started yeah. to talk about at the beginning of it. Because as we be- recover, we will become more complex because, one, we have endured, survived, and escaped abuse and trauma. 
So we're different than when we entered into that situation. We're more Mm -hmm. complex. We're more complex because of damage, but we're also more complex because of the wisdom and the experience and the talents and skills we developed in the process of surviving and enduring and ultimately escaping. I mean, those take strengths and talents to be able to shift through. So Mm -hmm. the other part of it is that I find that individuals who have endured these sorts of things have done it at a loss to their emotional life. And here I am imagining mm-hmm. on your couch for five days knowing that that's, that's everybody's scenario. That's everybody's reaction to shifts in their life. And when you come back to yourself, you have to feel things. And so I'm going to play a game with you if that's okay, Nancy. Okay. Okay. Yeah, she's a little curious. Mm-hmm. And in that little curiosity, yeah, I'm, I'm going to let curious. everybody hang. <laughs> Everybody, I'm going to take this moment and say you can contact Nancy Levin at nancylevin.com. Nancy, do you want to tell us how else they can contact you? Uh, I'm on I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, so all the all the usual places. But my website, nancylevin.com, is the best place is the best place to find me for sure. Okay, and you can also find four of her wonderful books. And I'm going to just take this moment in the middle of this program before I start that game. What books do you have to offer? What gifts would you like to extend to our listeners? So I have, I do have four books. One of them is just getting ready to come out in September. And so again, if you go to the, if you go to my website, right at the top, there is a place to pre-order the new book, and it's called The New Relationship Blueprint. So it's very timely for what we're talking about, 10 Ways to Reframe the Way You Love. And when you pre-order the book, you will receive free access to a live online video workshop that I'm doing on August 7th, and it's called Your Boundary Breakthrough from Frustration to Freedom. So you can pre-order the new relationship blueprint right at the top of my website. Wonderful. And since many people will be listening after you're at that time, since this is uh, this is in, the, in July 2018, please do contact Nancy Levin at nancylevin.com, and that's at the, the face of this particular program. Okay, Nancy, you ready for the game? The premise of sure. the game is this. There are emotions and experiences we have of ourselves that existed prior to abuse and trauma that went through a metamorphosis during the midst of abuse and trauma and now have to go through different stages of evolution after abuse and trauma. This is about having a relationship with yourself. I'm going to say a word, say a little bit about the word, and then I would like it if you could trace how this word manifested itself before during and after an intense experience in your life so that people can begin to recognize that in relating to themselves, they have to reawaken or re-evolve these emotional and attitudinal experiences of themselves. Ready? Okay, Okay, here we go. The first word I'd like to say is attractiveness. I am an attractive person. That may be beauty, that may be handsome, that may be uh, something else, Uh, attractiveness. For, during, and after, attractiveness. Mm 
I need a little more clarity on the game. Okay. So, so you're I'm asking give, me how I'm do, how you, do I relate? Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example, because this is actually a game okay. I'd like everybody to be able to play with themselves in terms of being able to come more to terms with who they are after they've come out of abuse and trauma. So the very first statement is, I felt attractive before I ran into this trauma or this situation. I felt bold and outgoing and people seemed to like me and I liked them and I could flow in and out of the world feeling like I could attract good people and good experiences to me with ease. The second phase, I found myself in the midst of the trauma and abuse, and suddenly I felt like I was shrinking. I didn't want to attract attention to me. I wanted to become a wallflower. I wanted to be ignored. I wanted to be invisible because I didn't want this abuser to pay too much attention to me. In addition, my abuser, the traumatic situation made me feel ugly inside, turmoiled inside, like I was nothing but a twist of ugliness. Now that I'm recovering, this is the third step, now that I'm recovering, I have to have this new relationship with my experience of my own attractiveness. And what does it feel like to be attractive so people notice me or people will pay attention to me or people will respect me and and talk to me in a respectful sort of way? What do I attract in that sense? But what is my attractiveness so that when people look at me, see me, respond to me, I have some experience that this is going to be a good process because I'm attracting this type of experience of goodness. I feel my beauty. I feel my handsomeness. I feel my flow in the presence of my body in situations where I don't have to worry about if someone's going to look at me and judge me or snarl me. So this, what I'm trying to illustrate is that this is the exercise. What does the experience of attractiveness feel like to you before engaging in an abusive or traumatic situation, during the traumatic and abusive situation, and after. Does that make more sense to you? Yeah. So, I mean, here, I'll, I'll give, here's what's coming for me. So before, okay. I would say my attractiveness was actually linked with the way I could buy love. So what mm-hmm. can I do for you in order for you to love me? Okay. What can I be? What can I be? in order for you to love me? What can I do and be in order for you to love me? It wasn't so much for me in my particular scenario growing up, I didn't feel very attractive and that was reinforced. My unattractiveness was reinforced growing up. So I, so I overcompensated for physical attraction, let's say by being an overachiever. And okay. by being able to heal, by being able to heal something in others that I thought I had a power to heal. Okay. That's what actually led me right into the middle phase of the abuse. So because I was overcompensating and because I had an ability to get get anything done to do anything for anyone that was my motivation I also in turn allowed myself to be manipulated to allow and I enabled myself to be fashioned into an attractiveness that was 
in the vision of my husband. Hmm. So as part of my chameleon aspect, I allowed myself to be his creation. When I was on the other side of that, I had to come into a space of understanding attractiveness as something more holistic, so that it's physical, that it's emotional, that it's internal, and that it's, it's an inside job. It's something that's predicated by me, not by approval, not by validation of anything external. And now how do you experience your own attractiveness? That's a very interesting question at this time in my life. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's something that I'm personally, I'll be honest with you, it's something that I'm grappling with as I age. Mm -hmm. And and it's something that's actually very alive for me. So it's it's Mm -hmm. very interesting that you chose that word. It's not mm-hmm. a word I would have anticipated you choosing when mm-hmm. you started the game. Mm-hmm. I, my mind went in other directions of words you would choose. So mm-hmm. I found it a little um, startling, I would even say, that that mm-hmm. was the word you chose. Mm-hmm. I, listeners, I warned Nancy at the beginning of the interview that I wanted to catch her in her authentic ponderment. And thank you, Nancy. You just shared that with us because that's where yeah. we're at. We're, we're at this authentic pondering we don't have perfect answers. We don't have perfect clarity. We are in the midst of evolving. You know, I shared with you this also. This is my 63rd birthday. Boy, do I understand aging, <laughs> you, know, mm-hmm. you know, and of course, I'm going to continue hopefully to uh, explore that sense of aging and attractiveness question as well, because that's what women and men often have to do. I think this is perplexing for women. And this is a relationship with ourselves that's mm-hmm. very important to navigate as we're on our five days on that couch kind of metaphor like what do I what do I express myself in terms of a sense of my own attractiveness and what do I find attractive about myself and how do I grapple with the changes in my my body my face and my own personality as I've gone through the bitterness and the torment and the torture and the denigration of self-esteem that often comes with trauma and abuse. So that's why attractiveness is there in the forefront of my question. I'm going to move on to another word. And I think the word I'm going to choose, hmm, I'm debating between the word I feel ashamed or uh, the word that is uh, power. What is, what's this relationship to personal sense of empowerment? You choose your preference. Which word? The shame piece is what came up, is what sort of lit up in me first when you, okay. said, when you said it. So, uh, and I know that shame lived in me as a very small child, the feeling ashamed. Um, I, was, I was two years old when my six-year-old brother died. So there was shame uh, and he was he was um, he was born mentally retarded, very physically and men- uh, incapacitated. So there was a shame that I felt in being healthy. There was a sh- there was survivor guilt. 
there was a shame that I felt in why do I get to live and he does not. And so that mm. was instilled at a very, very young age. Mm. That shame, that shame uh, morphed into what I was mentioning earlier around this idea of, of the overcompensation for the shame, because I think they both have to live next to each other, the shame itself, and then what am I going to do to overcompensate for the existence of this shame within me? So that, hmm. so that I don't have to see it and no one else has to see it. Hmm. And that turned into, for example, with my parents, trying to heal a grief in them that could never be healed. Hmm. And a shame around being unable to fix or rescue my brother. Hmm. That exactly what mapped on to the relationship with my now ex-husband. The and you heard me say this in in the talk I gave uh, in in Toronto uh, mm-hmm. that on the day we met it was as it was as if he introduced himself by saying like hi I am broken and I said great I am Superwoman I will fix you mm-hmm. and so and so the shame piece with him morphed also into the overcompensation of I will fix you, I will rescue you, I will save you. I couldn't do it for my brother, but let me see if I can do it for you. Mm-hmm. And How clearly I couldn't because we cannot ever, we cannot ever do that for another person. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting, the conversation of shame now where I, where I am because it's not something that I live with. It's something, it's not, it's not something that I, that I, uh, that's alive in me. And it is something that I've had to, I've had to process. I've had to work through certain events and circumstances that led to the dissolution of my marriage were very, uh, were embedded with a lot of shame for me personally and I needed to be able to move through that shame and to the place now where it's, like I said, it's not alive for me. It's not existent within me. It's not that I don't have the capacity for it. We all do. But mm-hmm. it's not something that's going to take me out in the way that it used to. Mm-hmm. It's as if you've said, oh, I can't rescue those people and I don't need to hold myself back to rescue them. I'm going to just leave them where they're at, do whatever I could, but I'm going to go on. I need to go on and thrive. It's that, yes, it's that. And I think another really important piece of it is when when we feel deep shame, what sits right next to that is the fear of judgment of others. Mm hmm the fear of others judging us. And once we can understand that our fear of others judging us is really a reflection of the judgment we are already feeling for ourselves, then it, it becomes the object of our attention needs to be to clean up the relationship between me and me. I'm not judging myself so that I'm mm-hmm. not sitting here with that internal baseball bat and going at mm-hmm. it. 
Because once that's cleaned up, there's no Velcro for someone else's judgment. Mm-hmm. And there we are on that couch saying, I need to walk into this relationship with myself moving forward without judgment, you know, without judgment. Mm-hmm. What, what's that? And that, that, that must have a big question mark on the top of that, without judgment. What in the world does that mean to not mm-hmm. judge myself yeah. and not, and not yep. engage with other people's inclinations to be judgmental because they're caught in the same trap? Uh, and that's a huge, like, what is that going to feel like to not live with judgment? That's that internal abuser that uh, we kind of is a go-to place. It's familiar. It calls to us. It beckons us. We think that it's the thing that's going to keep us in check, that's going to keep us performing well, that's going to keep us at our best, when actually it's this cruelty that doesn't allow us to hear and cultivate our own excellence in our own image. Mm -hmm. Beautifully said. Okay, I'm going to give you another word. Ready? I'm going to give you some choices. So I think I'm going to choose, I think I'm going to choose between the word happiness and whatever that's conceived before the complicated relationship during and then after, or the word meaningful living or elite words, meaningfulness or purposefulness. So you choose happiness or meaningful or purposeful living. It's interesting. You know, uh, they're, they're somewhat connected, obviously, but I certainly spent the first part of my life believing that happiness was for other people. Uh, that's simply happiness, joy was something for other people. It was frivolous. It was lazy. It was irresponsible. Happiness in my marriage was dictated by, uh, I would say, sort of his, his happiness. So my happiness was predicated on his. So there was, uh, ex- there was uh, external attention being paid to happiness. So I, it was what I was talking about earlier, taking someone else's temperature first. You know, if you're happy, I'm happy. Or, you know, if, if, everything's, if everything's okay here, status quo, then I'm happy. And now it's interesting. I, I have a really tenuous relationship to happiness. Um, I, I, I'm not driven by happiness. Uh, so in other words, it's not, it's not, it's not something um, that drives me to be happy because I think happiness is fleeting. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a consistent state. I think there are moments of happiness and it can come in a, in a, in a split second of, you know, like before we got on air, I said I went for a hike this morning. It can come in a split second of looking up at the ridge line and seeing the moon setting behind the ridge early this morning. Mm-hmm. Like that's Beautiful. a split second of happiness. But I don't expect it to last. I don't expect to walk through my life feeling happy in every moment. It's not something that I anticipate or something that drives me. So I don't feel like I'm chasing happiness in any way. 
Ah, beautiful. Okay, another word. I think I do want to go back to the word power. I think that when, just to initiate, this is an important word for people to sit on during their five days on the couch. That's just the metaphor now mm-hmm. of, um, of, whoa, I've just gotten out of this horrible situation and it made me feel incredibly powerless and recognizing my own vulnerability to being dominated, destroyed, stepped on, potentially killed, you know, and I've just survived it and I've escaped. I, I have no sense of my own real powerfulness. And yet prior to those experiences, this word power entered into your life, our lives. During that time, we had, this, we had to navigate our own sense of power. We did have to escape. We did endure. We did survive. So we manifested some type of power that we probably need to go back and retrieve because they were probably pretty powerful tools. And now we are stepping into our next set of lives that we're evolving and as we recover and then thrive and then transform. And we have to kind of address that sense of what is my personal empowerment or strength or capacities that make me feel self-reliant or capable? Okay, take it away. What's your take? I I would say that that again power for me everything in my life will circle back to this uh circumstance of my brother dying and so the power piece uh came from this place you know you name self-reliance i know that i was imprinted um with certain beliefs around his death and around him needing so much during his short life, uh, imprinted with, I best, best I be self-sufficient, best I be self-reliant, best I take care of myself. My, my needs aren't as great as his. And that became a through line. And so the power became in my uh, stubbornness, I might say even. So it, it looked like, for example, I did not want to go to the school my parents wanted me to go to. And I flunked the entrance exam on purpose. And I went to a different school, got straight A's, graduated high school with perfect attendance, National Honor Society. So it wasn't anything about my intelligence. I just knew I didn't want to go to the school they wanted me to go to. And I made sure I couldn't go. That's power. That was, that was a way that I asserted my power as, you know, like in eighth grade. I mean, young. Uh, I would say that throughout my, you know, throughout the period of abuse, my marriage, you know, the, the, like I, was, I mentioned it early on, there was this um, sort of strange paradox. I was in tremendous power in my career, and yet directly oppositional to that was feeling powerless in my marriage. And I would say that now, I would say now that uh, power lives in me in in the way, and really, I would say power lives inside of me now, right next to courage. 
Mm. So that it doesn't mean that I'm not afraid. It means I'm acting despite the fear. And I'm asserting my power in a way that it's having me be able to to uh, let me say, like, utilize my own story, my own experiences to support others in healing and evolving. To me, that's power. Mm. Beautifully said. And listeners, what I want you to also take away, not only these wonderful expressions that Nancy Levin is using, but also notice that Nancy Levin is in the midst of self-reflection, deep contemplation and that's what this type of exercise helps you do and nancy people could do this talking to a good friend or they could do these type of exercises on their journal writing or on their walks Mm -hmm. or hikes and because it's this taking a word an important word and just wondering who was i during these different phases and who am i now and who do i want to grow into as i optimize being my true self i'm not asking you to be anybody else but yourself but optimizing your true self by these questions. Other words that you could use might be, and that's I'm going to ask you for your list of words, but it could be along the lines of forgiveness, love, sexuality, uh, hope, fear, depression, sadness, anger. These are the types of experiences of being yourself, your relationship Mm -hmm. with you, where Mm -hmm. you want to kind of have this internal dialogue, whether it's your parent to your baby or one side of your committee to another side of your committee, where you get to have this experience of many ways of feeling who you are. And that will actually help you integrate all of these emotional experiences and these attitudinal experiences of yourself into this new you. So, Nancy, having said that, what would be words you would find important on on the list of people well, that you help? Go ahead. Yeah. I just, I want to, I want to even just um, sort of back up from that for a moment to say how important it is for us to embrace all of those words you're using, all of those aspects of ourselves, to not to realize that we've disowned parts of ourselves by making it wrong or bad to be, to be that. And so it is about understanding that we are everything. We are the light. We are the dark. We are the ones who put a charge or a spin on a word or a quality or an aspect. Mm-hmm. But that we really, we really are, we really are everything and that the, the more quickly we can embrace and integrate these parts of ourselves that we've disowned, yes, the more we actually come into the fullness of who we are and, and we're able to be at peace with that. So I agree with all of the words that you named, and I, I continue to stay on my soapbox around, around selfish. I think it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the most important words, qualities, aspects of ourselves that we need to reclaim and re-own. Hmm. And that is a very interesting word to end on in this world of narcissism and narcissistic self-centered. You know, a lot of abusers are very narcissistic. So being selfish in light of that, boy, that is a really, really powerful word filled with lots of different angles to it. 
Thank you for leaving so us. So can I just say thought? Oh, yeah. please. Can I, can I just say one last thing about that? Yeah. So being someone who was married to a narcissist, <laughs> yeah. here's what I want us, here's what I want everyone listening to understand. When, and because I know that there's a cringe that happens around even saying I am selfish. It's something we're going to want to deny. We're not going to want to be. We think it's bad. We think it's wrong. I don't want to be selfish like my ex-husband. I don't want to be selfish like my father, like my mother, whatever that looks like. The more we disown the quality, the more we will draw people toward us who embody the quality. Yes. So we've drawn the narcissist toward us. I, I, it's important to name that. We've drawn the selfish people toward us because we've disowned our own selfishness. And when we reclaim it and embrace it and integrate it, we will no longer have the need to draw them toward us. Hmm. I guess the word that comes to me is, is it, is it more palpable for me? when I think of being selfish to how am I going to celebrate being me and respect me? And how am I going to allow the me that I celebrate and respect to also celebrate and respect others simultaneously? Hmm. Wow. Very thought provoking. Mm -hmm. Nancy, thank you so much for giving us this, these pithy sorts of ways of looking at our own evolution. What would you like to say as we exit here? I would like to say that your present moment choice is the predictor of your future. So your present moment choice is your crystal ball. The choices you make in this moment will determine the future so that you can actually take action to live in the future that you most desire. That's what I want you to remember. Beautifully said. Again, Nancy, how do people contact you? You can find me at my website, nancylevin.com. All my information is there, and I look forward to staying connected. Absolutely. Okay, everybody, go out, embrace your day, embrace yourself, celebrate you, respect yourself, ask yourself these wonderful, interesting questions as you grow in this wonderful intimacy with yourself. And then find those individuals that have the wherewithal to respect and celebrate themselves and also you. Best of days. Best of your days to you, Nancy. Thank you for your wisdom and your truth. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And your truth. Mm. 